Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, public health for the public. My name is Dr. Philip Chan from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Today, we are talking about a problem that is affecting everyone, a shortage of primary care physicians here in the state of Rhode Island. It's causing long wait times for appointments and the inability in many cases for doctors to take on new patients. Our guest today is a primary care educator, researcher, clinician, and advocate whose career has bridged two fields, family medicine and medical anthropology, both in the U.S. and abroad. He's been active here in Rhode Island on healthcare policy, including co-chairing the Care Transformation Collaborative here in Rhode Island and the Task Force on Primary Care Workforce Development. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Borkin. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure being here. So Dr. Borkin, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and who you are. Well, thank you. Like a lot of family doctors, we have a broad vision of what we do and are engaged in all kinds of activities. So I continue to see patients from Pawtucket and Central Falls at the Care New England facility in Pawtucket. I do inpatient work on the family medicine service at the Miriam and continue to be active in education at the medical school in the family medicine residency and nationally, advocate and do research. And how long have you been a primary care doctor? Well, I think it was probably always in my soul that I trained at the latter part of the 1980s, and I have been in family medicine as an attending since 1987, and I've been in Rhode Island initially as the chair of family medicine for 21 years, from 2001 to 2022, and I'm currently the assistant dean for primary care population medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University. So I've been doing this for quite a while. So let me ask you this. It seems like in medical education, a lot of residents and medical students are really drawn to some of these specialty fields. What drew you to family medicine? What what was it about being a primary care doctor that made you want to do it? Well, great question. I think that you know we actually have two kinds of students in medical school. We have those who like to focus and like to focus on the smaller and smaller aspects of care or of the body, and they feel more comfortable having lots of knowledge about a particular aspect of care or a direction of care. Then you have the other group, which right now is insufficient numbers, the folks who are more generalists, who walk into a room who look right, left, up, and down, who love the arts, who love humanities, who love science, who love people, who love travel, who love sports, who are really fascinated by the human experience. And I think I was one of those latter individuals, and I I remember being in a medical school clinic where there were four people in the room, two parents and two kids. And because of the nature of the field, I was only allowed to treat the two kids. And the two parents had the same diseases. And I thought, hmm, I really need to think broadly. I need to be in a field where I can treat everyone from kind of cradle to grave. And also, I really believe in the importance of systems thinking. And so I wanted to be in a field that cherished that, that really saw that Health doesn't just exist in an organ or a person, but is also in family, a neighborhood, a community, and a society, and you know the importance of the biopsychosocial model. Now, I'm going to ask you a very basic question here, and I think similar to you, you know, I've seen a lot of patients who haven't had a primary care doctor in a decade, more, uh, et cetera, until something bad happens. But to our listeners out there, tell us why they should have a primary care doctor, and frankly, how often people should check in with their primary care physician. And I know that may depend on age a little bit. Well, it's a great question. I think I would probably start and say that, you know, my point of view, which is I think shared by most primary care doctors in the state and also a lot of the health insurers and health systems that 
Every Rhode Islander should have a primary care doctor. Every Rhode Islander should have a primary care doctor. And that when you sign up for insurance, you get assigned. It's not a wild dream. It's done in Great Britain. It's done in Kaiser Permanente and Intermountain Health. It's uh, critically important that people have someone. And if you want to get just down to the brass tacks, if you have a primary care doctor, you're going to live longer. There is some evidence that having a primary care doctor increases your chance of surviving by 19%. And that's because if you have uh, somebody who manages all of your problems, there'll be someone thinking about, well, are there drug-drug interactions that are going to hurt me? Um, what annual exams should I be doing to help to prevent disease? Am I up to date on my vaccinations? Am I treating my chronic illnesses in a way that will help me? So there's lots of evidence to show that if you have a primary care doctor in places with primary care doctors, people live longer, they live healthier lives, they have fewer heart attacks, they have less pneumonia. You know, we're hoping that means for, uh, meaningful lives. But for some reason, some of the, the decision makers in society are not focusing on that. And we keep turning out too many specialists and too few primary care doctors. We need a careful balance of the two. And that leads me into my next question here. I mean, it's it's a fairly common story that we're hearing here, not just in Rhode Island, but frankly, many places across the U.S. about patients not being able to get into primary care, about there being long waiting lists. What's what's going on? What's sort of the state of primary care in Rhode Island? Well, it's a great question. And I think you have to look look at the way that we organize ourselves. There is not workforce planning in Rhode Island or in the country. We do not plan to train people to meet the needs of our population. So what's happened now, and you know, partially based on what medical students like, I, I have a colleague who says the medical system is formulated by the 26-year-olds. They get to choose pretty much whatever they want to go into. You know, there's some more competition, some less, but there's not the balance between primary care and uh, specialty care. So that uh, people can't get into their primary care doctors, in part because there are not sufficient numbers of primary care doctors. It has a huge impact on their health. And I think that, you know, it's pretty much recognized that uh, we need people who are going to focus on particular disease states and also others who are going to be generalists. Just to that point, is it is it a matter of just training more primary care doctors, opening up slots at medical school, uh, et cetera? Well, it's, it's multifactorial, but there are some proposals uh, out there, and it certainly happens in, in other middle and high-income countries around the world, that they look at the population, and Rhode Island's a classic place, one million people, one hour to every corner by car, or, you know, one city, and see the same 100 people wherever you go. It would be easy to figure out, okay, how many neurosurgeons do we need? How many psychiatrists do we need? How many family doctors, primary care internists, primary care pediatricians, how many pathologists we need? And to begin to align the residency slots and you know, medical school to correspond to the needs of the population. We have not done that locally nor nationally. And so what we have is that uh, students get attracted to certain fields, more go into it, that changes kind of decade by decade, but it doesn't meet the needs of the population. You know, it's interesting. My training during residency was in general internal medicine uh, with Dr. Kelly McGarry, who you may know. But I find that so much of what I do now in public health is actually primary care preventative health. So even as a infectious disease specialist, most of my clinical time is primary care, even though uh, it involves some aspects of HIV, sexual health. I work a lot with the LGBTQ population, but 
I mean, I agree with you that we need, you know, we need more primary care, not just in Rhode Island, but really across the U.S. here. I mean, part of the problem, too, I think a little bit is the reimbursement structure and the system, right? So as a surgeon, uh, as a cardiologist or, you know, neurosurgeon, I could get paid a lot more just because the system is going to reimburse me for doing all these procedures. Is that part of it as well? Is that something that needs to be addressed as well, in your opinion? You know, absolutely. We are not in primary care. We're not attracting. We're not sufficiently supporting. We're not sufficiently retaining. And it gets back to, you know, doctors used to be paid approximately the same irrespective of their specialty. I'm also the uh, head of the curriculum committee at Brown. And we, you know, we asked the question, what do you love doing? Go into that field. It shouldn't be about the money and about the lifestyle. But how is it that medical students are facing a situation where if they go into one specialty, they'll make four times as much when they leave it, as opposed to other specialties. It's not good for public health, preventive health. It's not good for the health of the population. And some of it goes back to one guy at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid in the 1980s who said, hmm, which should be paid more, doing procedures, like so working with your hands or working with your head? And, uh, you know, he had the model that said, well, I think we'll pay more for people who can do procedures with good hands. Hopefully they have good heads as well. And it really turned the system a bit on its head that people who do procedures make more money. Uh, certain fields make more money. And it's kind of, I always use the example of orthopedic surgeons who you know, train for the same number of years as pediatric oncologists. Pediatric oncologists will make one quarter right out of residency and over their lifetime, even less than the orthopedic surgeon. Does that mean we favor joints over children with cancer? Well, on some level, that's what's happened, and that probably needs to be changed. Reimbursements are insufficient. There's the thought that primary care doctors should make kind of 0.8 of what specialists make and that that would help with the system. In some places like Great Britain and Canada, they've actually paid primary care doctors more, and that's certainly one of the aspects. So we're not necessarily attracting people. We're not designing medical schools to stay uh, with primary care interest, even if they come in with that. We're putting more kind of glamour and popularity to some of the, the higher paying specialties. And we're creating a healthcare system which doesn't really serve anyone well. And the debt too, the overwhelming debt of medical school, I think also puts pressure on some of the students to go into potentially specialties that pay more, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's something which I've asked now five different deans is, why are all medical students paying the same amount? I'll give the example, Yale Law School. If you finish Yale Law School and you become a public defender, you pay about $10,000 per year for your law school. You go into corporate law, you pay the full ride. So should we be charging medical students differently depending on are they going into a specialty that's either well-paying or is in excess in our state or nationally? And should we be charging less to those who are in primary care, uh, and not just primary care. You know, we have insufficient numbers of psychiatrists, general surgeons. It's been a tough time for generalists in, in general and not just in medicine. But yes, why are they paying the same? And at the, you know, after they graduate, and we were just having discussions today about trying to expand it, Rhode Island has a very, very small loan repayment program for those going into primary care. Um, you know, it, it really funds a, a, a intestinally small number compared to the need. But if you come into primary care in Rhode Island, should your loans be paid back? And that's whether you're a primary care physician, a nurse practitioner, or a PA. 
because it turns out, and you know, we could talk about this more, there are insufficient numbers, not just in medicine. So number of physicians going into primary care, there is no cavalry. The PAs and the NPs are also going into specialty care. Let's talk about some solutions here. We'll get into what Rhode Island specifically is doing, but I think just generally, I mean, what do we in the field of medicine, primary care need to do to address this issue? Well, it's a great question. And this is where the Care Transformation Collaborative of Rhode Island, which is a great organization that's pulled together the providers, patients, the government, uh, and the insurers has really begun to look at what can we do to improve the primary care provider workforce. So they've come up with a variety of suggestions, and we're working on creating a strategic plan by the end of the year. We really have gotten to six platform demands, or at least suggestions, we may not call them demands. Number one, we have to reform and increase payments, incentives, and salaries to primary care providers. And we need to get parity. We're not asking necessarily to make more, but people should be making the same if they're working the same number of hours. And that's with other specialties and also regionally. You know, you know, and a lot of people know that we get paid less in Rhode Island than in our neighboring states of Massachusetts and Connecticut. <clears throat> so a lot of our graduates who are some of the most valued providers in the world go right across the border. So we were thrilled, Dr. Chan, that you were trained by Dr. McGarry, a great primary care teacher and provider, and you stayed in the state. Number two, we have to recruit more medical students, medical residents, and NP and PA trainees to go into primary care. That means supporting them with interest groups while they're students, with special uh, perks for staying in primary care, and in general, encouraging them to be primary care providers. You may not know, Dr. Chen, that actually Brown Medical School started as a primary care medical school, but in the 1960s and 70s, but quickly became more of a research-oriented school. Uh, we have to increase the funding for training primary care providers and increase the number of sites, not just in medicine, but also for the NPs and PAs. Many of the, of the primary care sites the preceptors are not paid for their teaching time, even though it reduces their productivity and takes more of their time. So can we pay people for doing the teaching that is not just volunteer? And can we also improve what the education is like so that they're not just trained to do basic primary care, but kind of advanced primary care that includes all the new transformation items? The idea is, can we enhance on-site clinical training? So if we get students and trainees into primary care sites, we support the preceptors. Can we increase the quality, the innovation, the transformation of the education that's happening there? We want to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's been a problem in medicine for centuries, but can that be part of what we do? And finally, can we identify data sources on primary care providers? We just finished a survey of the program directors, but we actually don't know how many primary care providers there are in the state. And even if we have some estimates of that, and we know that, for example, that by 2030, we need 100 more primary care providers, and that's only six years away. We don't have good data on who's actually seeing patients full-time, part-time, who's doing most of the work over the border. All we have are kind of the rough data. So can we create some data sources that are, that are actionable and accurate and allow us to kind of move forward? So those are kind of our strategic goals. And you know we need to make changes because every year that we don't, we create a medical system which is more and more unbalanced. It isn't meeting the needs of patients, isn't helping in prevention, 
And we need to get to that spot where every Rhode Islander has a primary care doctor. And I'll just add too that it, you know, it affects public health. It affects our response to COVID. It respects our affects our response really to a lot of things here in public health. And really at the end of the day, too, it worsens some of the disparities that we see, especially for some of the communities of color, especially for some of the communities that just don't have access as well. So I think all those points sound good. I do actually want to um, touch on one thing that you mentioned, which I've thought of before, and I'm, I'm curious about the solution here. Uh, the very first point you mentioned was about parity. And that was reminding me that as a physician, you know, if I went to work in Massachusetts or Connecticut, I could earn 30% more just right off the bat. How do we think about addressing parity? Uh, is that something that needs to come down from the federal government? Is that just all about reimbursement from the feds? How do we how do we get that parity between states? Because that's out of our control, right, here in Rhode Island? Oh, not out of our control. I mean, it's it's difficult to change. And, and there should be you know, two things noted. One is we have a great Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner. And, you know, as you know, the primary care spend in Rhode Island used to be five cents on the dollar. So five cents on the dollar went to primary care, even though we're seeing about 30 to 40 percent of the patient visits. The first health insurance commissioner actually said, what's happening in more robust healthcare systems? And they saw that it's about 10 percent being spent on primary care. And so he began a process that's been continued that we're now at 12 percent spent on primary care, particularly in transformation. So we're doing a few of those things. And the parity, uh, which you, at least in primary care, and I can speak for family medicine, exactly what you're saying is that if you went literally two miles over the border, you would earn 30% more. That's decreased now to about 10% more. So it's been recognized by the health centers, by the employers, and hopefully by the third parties that we need to pay our primary care doctors more or they're all going to run out of the state. But um, we could change things in Rhode Island. That just demands you know, work action from Medicaid, from Neighborhood Health Plan, from Blue Cross and Blue Shield, we, you know, harder to influence Medicare, where we begin to really incentivize people in similar manner so that the salaries become more equal across specialties. You know, I always ask the medical students, like, what's the moral reason, the moral imperative for paying people differently? And, you know, sometimes they say, well, how dangerous is the work and uh, how much is it involved with patients who are critically ill? You know, there's the issue of hours, but there's really no moral justification for paying doctors differently. So it could be done in Rhode Island. It, you know, it may make it more difficult to attract some of the higher paid specialties, but probably we do need a shift in what we pay people to make it more equal. And that I think would begin to help us in terms of what people are going into, but also it would give a sense that you go into a field because you love it, not because you're necessarily paid more. And that you know, and you know, lots of specialists come up to me and say, I can't get my patients into primary care doctors. They know that we have a problem. Are they ready to shift some of their income over to primary care? Maybe not yet, but it could be done gradually. But the notion being that that's one of the key aspects. We have to pay our primary care doctors and providers more and it has to have greater parity of what's happening around the region and within our state. Well, thank you so much for your work on this. Critically important. Thank you for your work for the Care Transformation Collaborative of Rhode Island. And obviously, the Department of Health recognizes as well the importance of increasing the primary care workforce here in the state of Rhode Island. I will say we are uh, running out of time here. Uh, any final thoughts for the people listening today? Sure. Well, number one, this isn't going away. And also, people may not know that Rhode Island is one of the 
founding sites of generalism in the world. Specialists came over from Great Britain before the Revolutionary War. They got to Rhode Island and other colonies and, and realized they needed to be generalists. We even had a, a primary care governor who used to do house visits on his horse on his way to the state house. And that this is a new situation. Up to 70 to 80 percent of physicians in the United States were generalists until World War II. World War II, there was the GI Bill. After the war, there was the kind of rise of technology. This shift is really happening since the 1940s. Brown, as I noted, started as a primary care medical school. It has the primary care population medicine program, which I helped to direct, which uh, is really focused on trying to turn out more primary care doctors. But we need to think more broadly. We need to kind of rebalance what's happening in medical school, what's happening in MP schools and PA schools. And it, it has to be across the spectrum, how we attract students. Maybe we should go more into Rhode Island high schools and do more of the kind of health planning, health career days and think about primary care. We have to attract more students who are not focusers, but who are generalists and who are committed. We have to think about having them pay less tuition or getting better loan repayment when they finish making the sites where they work kind of feasible so the good working conditions and doing whatever we can to sustain, support and retain. Because this is a time period, as you know, of burnout and uh, moral injury. How can we correct that? And I think we would demand from everyone listening today and everyone who's in healthcare to think about the whole system and not just the piece they're involved in. That is good advice for sure. A topic that we could spend an entire podcast on, uh, physician burnout. But one final question for you, for people who are not able to find a primary care doctor or physician, what would you tell them at this point? Would you tell them just to call around or what are what are some options that you would suggest to people? Oh, great question. Well, I think one thing they should do is call their Rhode Island legislators and say, hey, I can't get into a primary care doctor. But I would say that they should think broadly about the kind of practice they're looking at. So whether it's kind of direct primary care, just with a doctor, whether it's group practice, look at the, we have great federally qualified health centers in the states. That would be number one. Number two, they'll often call up and say, oh, you could be seen in six months as a new patient. That's not good. So continue to call around and also ask, are you having some new providers joining the practice who I might be able to start with? And that's something which we are now through Brown Family Medicine and through some of the other programs, keeping more of our graduates in the state. About half of them stayed in the last two years. Are there spaces in their clinics that taking new patients? And just, you know, they mostly go into practice in September, October. So this is a perfect time to call around. And I think just to be patient. Right now, having a primary care doctor is at a premium. So when you find someone, stay with them, see them once a year for your annual visit and you know, use them for the majority of your healthcare needs. Because I, you know, I think that if people know they're gonna live longer, they're gonna have less disease and better managed chronic disease, it's gonna move that bar. But I think we have to demand more from our insurers, from our legislature, from our governor, and from our colleagues. Dr. Jeffrey Borkin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. A pleasure speaking with you. And just a general reminder to folks to do please check in with your primary care provider, as Dr. Borkin mentioned, really important for your health. And it's just been shown to lead to better outcomes and keep people healthy. So please do check in, make an appointment if you haven't seen your primary care provider in a while. And in closing, I do want to thank Erica Collins, our executive producer, and Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Philip Chan, signing off on behalf of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all and be well.